Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the show where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from Gretchen Soderlund, author of Sex Trafficking, Scandal, and the Transformation of Journalism, 1885 through 1917. Soderlund's book gets at the heart of muckraking, sensationalism, and racial identity during one of journalism's most volatile and exciting periods. Gretchen, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me, Dave. So before we get into the book, uh, just if you would give our, our listeners some background of how you got to where you are now and, and uh, your background um, as an academic. As an academic and how I've got to where... Um, well, I received my PhD from the Institute of Communications Research at Urbana-Champaign. Um, I was always, I um, have a, you know, straight academic background. Um, I was started out as an English major, but was, as an English major, realized that I was probably more interested in sociology than I was in literature. And um, when I was thinking about how to balance sort of all, all of my interests, I stumbled on communications um, and thought that that would be a, you know, a perfect sort of melding of, of my diverse interests, which had become sort of sociological and historical, but also interested in, um, in culture and, and literature in some ways. Um, and, uh, and so the ICR provided a very you know, fertile grounds for doing that kind of interdisciplinary work. Um, and uh, then I went on to become, um, to teach in an English department and as, and, and a history department at Virginia Commonwealth University. But I am now moving over to um, the University of Oregon, where I'll be the, an assistant professor of media history. This project is there's there's so much depth and so much detail, and we definitely want to go into the details of that book. But when did this project begin? And I realize that you know projects never really have an official end or an official you know beginning point. But at what point did you decide that this is something that could really be book length, and that this is a topic that you were interested in diving into? When I was working on my PhD, um, I came up with the, you know, the 
kernel of an idea that then, you know, germinated over time and became this book, this book. But it really started out as, you know, a hunch and, uh, uh, you know, just something that was that seemed like an interesting idea that I explored to some degree as a graduate student, but then really delved into in my postdoctoral years. And, and, and as you moved on in, in the postdoctoral years, were you, you know, was it always in the back of your mind that this was a broader project that it would go beyond, you know, a, a paper here and a paper there, that this is something that could um, certainly be expanded? Yes, especially once I, you know, began doing the archival research, um, I and started following the archival leads from place to place. I realized that it was a much bigger project than I originally expected, um, and in some ways um, more profound. Um, how so? Well, you know, it started out with with a hunch that controversies over sex trafficking in the progressive era were were intimately connected to debates over journalistic objectivity um but i was and and that that controversies over sex trafficking were also linked you know, to a print to the print media in ways that historians hadn't considered before, um, and so you know, I had that sort of sense. But but I, at that point, my project was limited, or my thinking my thinking was sort of limited to the progressive era um, and American journalism, and. You know, by the time the project was finished, I had crossed the Atlantic. I had moved backward, you know, back in time rather than forward in time. <laughs> so I actually started at the, you know, when I was originally conceiving the project, I started at the end of the project and then I worked backwards. Um, but I had no idea that, you know, I would move back to 1885 to, um, you know, to to stead and and late Victorian England. So let's start at the end, which you said is also the beginning. Um, <laughs> sort of sort of working backward. What was special about 1917, which is you know, the end frame of this book, that that was the point that that was such a key point and a key uh, you know time in this era that you were looking at. What was it about that year? About that year, well, uh, the onset of World War One, mm. obviously, which you know changed not just journalism, but and not just American society, but um, but but global um, culture and global society. Um, but also the demise. I mean, one one thing that my book is arguing is that is that these scandals over sex trafficking actually led to to or contributed to the demise of muckraking. Um, then that's also a year. You know, by 1917, muckraking was out of the picture, um, and so it was a. 1917 provided a good cutoff year for my book because of those two, those two things, you know, this radical transformation in the print media and also um, 
World War One, which really took issues like domestic sex trafficking off the agenda. Sure. The you had mentioned you know going through and, and doing the archival research. I'm curious a little bit about about the methods and um, your historical methods can be laborious, incredibly gratifying, and and beneficial. But there must have been a lot of, of content for you to go through, or maybe not. I don't know. But what was that like? What was the process of in terms of your historical methods and uh, that you that you applied to this book? Well, um, <laughs> my experience certainly gave me respect for the process. I can say that um, if I had any idea how many research trips I would have to take, uh, you know, I think that research really tells you whether your hunches hold water or it. Conversely, it refutes them. And um, for me, the his, my historical research unfolded in unexpected ways. You know, so when you start with one pro- one problem, and that opens up a host of other problems. Um, and the task of the researcher, I think, is to decide which questions and which problems to take responsibility for, and then to follow them through. You know, to their conclusion. Um, and when researching the book, I never confined myself to one media source, but instead I allowed my archival findings to guide my next move. And as I mentioned, I started out researching the progressive era as an Americanist, and I ended up crossing the Atlantic Ocean. I introduced a whole cast of characters I had no idea I would investigate, um, you know, my research on William T. Stead and on the Women's Christian Temperance Union really wasn't part of the plan. But I, you know, I would read one uh, newspaper from 1907, and it would lead me to a newspaper article from 1906. You know, and I really just followed those those allusions um, to the next source. Um, and, you know, ended up with this book and it wasn't necessarily haphazard, right? I was always, I was, I, well, in some cases I would say I did read, oh, in one case I read about three years of a newspaper looking for, um, a promised scandalous expose that would, you know, create a, a, you know, far bigger stir than the maiden tribute of modern Babylon (laughs) (laughs) um, that was, you know, supposedly forthcoming from a, from a, uh, the New York daily graphic. And I never found it. So I did go down some blind alleys (laughs) at times, but, um, and it was certainly laborious. <laughs> the, the title, uh, Sex Trafficking Scandal and the Transformation of Journalism, um, the, the back part of that, it, it's, it's pretty broad. It's not, you know, it could be a trans- the transformation of investigative journalism, the transformation of civic journalism, um, but just the transformation of journalism. I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by book titles because they're so personal and, and you know, we, we apply so much meaning to them. Um, what, what was that decision-making process like and and what findings did you come up with that led to you to being comfortable with the transformation of journalism and just leaving it at that? 
<laughs> it's a bold title, isn't it? Um, the I am dealing with a broad transformation in this book. I look at you know what I consider and what some other media historians consider a transformation and epochal transformation from the dominance of, of sensationalism to journalistic objectivity. Um, and so for that reason, because I am dealing with sort of a, you know, broad change, I think that a statement like, or a title like the transformation of journalism is warranted in this case, um, even though I'm not discussing journalism as a whole, you know, I'm not discussing every newspaper. I move from, you know, New York City newspapers to Chicago newspapers to muckraking magazines. So I'm, I'm, you know, looking at um, the way the print media field deals with one topic over time, but then arguing for um, an expanded understanding of the role that this topic, sex trafficking, played in these in the broader transformation of this field. You know, about the, the transformation, there's this really interesting section in, in Chapter 5, um, New York Times and the Demise of Muckraking. It's you know, between George Turner and Charles Murphy is involved and Randolph Hearst is involved. And if you wouldn't mind, sort of just describe what was going on there with uh, um there's so much going on with, with Tammany and everything else. It's a great story that I think our, our listeners would really be curious about. Yeah. Well, George Kim Turner was um, one of the, at the time, most influential muckrakers. But I think because he never wrote an autobiography, <laughs> he, um, yeah, unlike most of the other muckrakers who really, who promoted themselves, um, and, you know, tended to write autobiographies, um, which has helped to catapult them into, you know, the annals of muckraking. Um, Kim Turner really faded away and started working in, um, you know, writing screenplays and moved into a career in um in Hollywood and in fiction. Um, but at the time, he was he was very influential, if controversial. And um, he had taken a job for McClure, S.S. McClure, um, the, of the preeminent muckraking magazine, McClure's. Um, he had become their uh, McClure's crime reporter after um, many of much of McClure's staff had left to found the American magazine. And uh, he was a an interesting muckraker because he wasn't necessarily a critic of capitalism. He was much he was much more worried about immigrant the the role that new immigrant groups were playing in the um, undoing of American Anglo-Saxon civilization. And so he wrote a series of pieces on sex trafficking. And the first was called 
um, a, the city of Chicago, a study of the great immoralities. And the second was, was called the daughters of the poor. And it focused on New York city's ostensible, um, white slavery problem. But both of these pieces argued that, um, that the, you know, the city, that Chicago and New York's corrupt leadership were implicated in, um, in the traffic in women and base not just condoning it, not just, you know, allowing it to happen um, without, uh, without policing it, but actually were profiting off of, you know, the bodies of these young women who were being sold. And, um, so he really caused a stir. He, he was not from New York, but when he, wrote the piece, the 1909 piece, The Daughters of the Poor About New York City, he created a political firestorm by alleging that, that Tammany Hall was, um, you know, reaping most of its profits off of what he, can, what he called white slavery, he and other moral reformers. Um, and he made these allegations just before a municipal election. And evidently, from everything I could find, really did alter the course of that election. Um, Tammany Hall was absolutely, you know, angry with this guy. They wanted to find out who he was. Um, the leadership wanted to find out who he was. There were threats made against him. Um, and it led to, you know, Hearst got involved, as you said. And, um, it led to, you know, not, o not only, you know, the, um, the um, altering the course of this election, but, um, but the New York City leaders decided to establish a commission to um, determine whether his allegations were true or false. And interestingly, they appointed um, John D. Rockefeller Jr., right, the the son of, you know, of, of, of senior who, um, you know, who had really taken the brunt of a lot of um, muckraking magazine of muckraking magazine allegations to head up this committee. And Rockefeller saw the opportunity, you know, not only to intervene in an issue that would be of public import and that would garner him a lot of good, um, uh, you know, public attention, um, but also an opportunity to take down muckraking and to challenge some of the, you know, central tenets of muckraking. So it was a very complicated case in which, you know, a, a variety of social actors were involved, including, you know, social reformers, monopoly capitalists, muckrakers, city officials, um, and in each at each juncture, I argue, you know, these interests sort of came to play in interesting ways. And these struggles over the meaning of sex trafficking um, had profound consequences um, in terms of, you know, what le uh, legislatively, um, in terms of their effect on journalism, um, and so forth. 
what are there's so many ways that sex trafficking was was framed and and by the, the journalists back then and used for either actual noble motives or sometimes personal motives what are in your research for this book and in the writing of the book, um, how many different ways? Uh, that, nah, forget how I said that way. How was sex trafficking used? I mean, it was, it, did you find that it was more covered in, for for in moral ways or in for personal gain or maybe gain against uh, a rival um, news organization? How was? What are some of the different ways that sex trafficking was used as a as a journalistic device? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think that it was used in, well, as you suggested, a number of different ways. Um, so not primarily moral, although um, morality had a big, you know, some of the editors and reporters who were writing on on sex trafficking certainly did so, you know, with a strong moral agenda. Um, but I think it was always a combination of, um, uh, a sincere desire to reform society, um, and to advocate sort of social, social, social purity goals. Um, and also a desire to increase newspaper circulation. So um, I think there were always sort of commercial ends in mind at the same time as, you know, these, as many of these reporters were, you know, strongly convinced that what they were writing, the phenomenon they were writing about was real. Um, but, you know, it was framed in so the, the, as I argue in the book, the concept of white slavery, I mean, as it was formulated in the late 19th and early 20th century, was very slippery, and it was deployed in a number of different ways and, and linked to a number of different social agendas um, that were not always compatible with one another. Yeah, and this, yeah I thought it was, it was just fascinating, this, the, this, the, the parts about white slavery. Um, did you get the impression that what was it a, a genuine fear that for lack of a better word that some of the muckrakers and others had on their own or do you think they were maybe sensing a social fear about it and then were so were they were capitalizing on that fear you know to drive circulation like you said about using you know using this fear of of white slavery um as a way to maybe draw some readers Ah, well, I think, you know, one of the arguments that I'm trying, that I try to make in the book is that what you see during this period, and this is part of the transformation of journalism, um, is that you see a movement from, particularly in the domain of, of moral and sexual issues, of, of um, social movements, sort of trying to influence the press in such a way that the press uh, takes on issues of social relevance that, you know, that these issues that these 
um, that these social movements deem socially relevant, like sex trafficking or like temperance. Um, and so you really see that in the late 19th century where um, William T. Stead, right, who uh, wrote the maiden tribute of modern Babylon, would not have reported on white slavery if he hadn't been contacted by reformers and, you know, essentially begged to do so, begged to, you know, try to do something to change public opinion and to push um, Parliament to pass the um, the uh, um, Criminal Law Amendment Act, of which they did in 1885 after the publication of Stead's expose. So in this early case, you've got reformers sort of pressuring journalists. And then in, in uh, my third chapter, I described the ways in which in the United States, the um, following the lead of Stead, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, you know, attempted to, um, through a vi- through a variety of means, attempted to convince re- mainstream editors and reporters to um, discuss prostitution in, in much the way Stead did. Um, and so you have these sort of social movements attempting to influence the press. But by the time you move into the muckraking era, you have, you find the print media launching these crusades on their own, right? And bringing in readers and interpolating those readers as activists. Um, And so, you know, you almost find the process is reversed in some way um, where, the popular media itself finds that it can create social movements in its wake. You, you know, just brought up chapter three and there's a, a section in there. Kind of what you're talking about now called the uh, campaigning against an impure press, mm-hmm. you know, in, in which, yeah, you know, the, the, the agenda, well, I guess I, I don't know if I'm using the road agenda, right. But in, in which, you know, the agenda is actually coming from the ground up. And uh, I think it just goes to exactly with what you're saying now um, of, of uh, a lot of it was, were muckrakers, even, you know, pre-muckraking responding to almost the, the, the wishes and the desires of their readers. Right. Yeah. And trying to capture readers at a time when, you know, the number of newspapers is, is growing by the year. Um, and yet there are these untapped audiences, right? I mean, you know, women have not come to newspapers and mass at this point. And so this is a period where, you know, uh, evangelical women's social movements are really feeling their weight and, um, you know, and able to offer themselves up as audiences as consumers of mainstream newspapers, if only, you know, (laughs) if only these newspapers will change their line, will stop writing this prurient, you know, sensationalistic stuff that we find morally repellent. Um, (laughs) And so, uh, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a moment where certain untapped audiences are, 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 particularly 
capable of influencing the press. But, you know, in, by the time you get, so in 1885, you have, you know, these anti-vice activists who are struggling to get newspapers to listen to them and to write news from their perspective. And it is a struggle. You know, they have to wage these monumental campaign, you know, write-in campaigns and they have to hire press superintendents. Um, but then by the beginning of the 20th century, you've got, you know, magazines that are doing this, that are, that are writing the kind of news that they would like to hear and, or to read, um, every two weeks. Um, and so there's this, there's a major shift that happens there. Sticking with what we were talking about before, this idea of, of white slavery, one one thing that really comes across in the book is that white slavery was about more than white slavery. It wasn't, you know, slavery in, in the context that's so often historically discussed in, in this country. Um, that white, that issues like urbanization and, and racial mixing and, and uh, other things all played into it. When, when you use the term white slavery, um, what are some of the other issues that society and journalists were dealing with that played into this broader theme? Oh, yeah, it it really is. The concept of white slavery really is a container for a lot of society's worst fears, isn't it? You're dealing with, well, I look at, you know, both the the English context and the American context, and they're obviously dealing with different issues. Um, but in America, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, you're obviously dealing with, you know, new uh, unprecedented levels of immigration by, you know, new types of immigrants. You're dealing with industrialization. You're dealing with um, uh, economic depression <laughs> and um, the labor, you know, labor, labor struggles, um, just a whole host of issue issues that really come to the, you know, racial issues um, that, that come are sort of freighted into discussions about white slavery. Um, so in some ways, white slavery really show exists at, or the concept of white slavery exists at the fault lines of society and allows you to see where where the social conflicts lie. Did that answer your question? It did. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what uh yeah, you answered it precisely. Um and yeah, cuz there was a, it, it is such a, a just such a, a an interesting idea and and there was so much that was just playing into it that I think you just really extrapolated that exactly um in, in a good way for our readers. Um I want to ask too and we're starting to come toward the tail end of it. Um we're not done yet. Um, but I did have one question. Um, the, um, there's, a, there's a professor at Iowa named uh, Gigi Durham, and, and she says that one of the most one of the best things about working on larger, larger projects, book projects like the one um, that this is, is that you know you think that you know your field as much, if not better, than most, and yet you always, in the re- over the course of research, come across ideas, or or facts, or uncover something that surprises you. Um, 
what about this book and what within this process surprised you that maybe you weren't expecting to find or thought you knew and it turned out just to be maybe um, a few degrees different? Hmm. I guess another way to put that is, in a less verbose way, is what did you learn from writing this book? Oh, well, in terms of what surprised me, I, I initially thought that I was that debates about objectivity were embedded in, about journalistic objectivity in particular, were embedded in press coverage of white slavery in the early 20th century. Um, And, you know, I think that I was, you know, the, the, that hunch was sort of borne out when I did the research, but I didn't, initially understand um, how important the concept of sensationalism was in and would be not only to my book but but also was to the people involved in the, in every facet of the white slavery controversy um, and so I ended up in some ways I think think that one of the main theoretical contributions of this book is its understanding of sensationalism, um, which I think is a, an under-theorized concept in journalism history. Um, and I want my next project is going to be a much larger study of sensationalism. Um, but so I was really surprised um, about that. Um, and I was, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was also surprised at the degree to which white slavery was the product of transatlantic media flows. Um, you know, that it, the, that it, William T. Stead really did um, spearhead the genre of sex trafficking reportage and then directly influenced social reformers in the United States to encourage newspapers in the United States to, you know, produce cover, to, to, to cover prostitution as though it were sex trafficking. Um, and I didn't think there. Were, I didn't realize that there would be such a direct connection between the work of Stead and American journalism. And I think that this really that it really underscored for me how influential a journalist Stead was, um, uh, and how innovative he was. And you know that he his legacy in the United States has not been explored to the degree that, that his legacy in England has. Um, but I think that he was, um, an, an influential figure, even to most of many of the muckrakers who came later, they were reading Stead's work as well. And they were, and, and the more savvy, you know, self-reflective, muckrakers were thinking about how their work differed from Stead's. Um, and, uh, you know, but also how 
how it was similar. So they sort of aspired to do some of the same things that Stead had done, but in a different way and in a, in a more fact-based, you know, research intensive way. And instead was such a key figure in your research and in this book, you know, I, I always sometimes will think about books and, you know, if they were being cast as movies and instead would certainly be one of the leads who are, who are some of the other um, journalists from that era? Uh, just maybe a, a small handful that were really relevant to your research and to this book and whose influence in one way or another we still see today. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, I mean, the, the two most influential that I, and that I focus the most on in the book are William T. Stead and, and George Kibb Turner. Um, but I would argue that even someone like Francis Willard, the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Organization Union, mm-hmm. was um, should be considered a key figure in journalism. And if not in journalism, she should be considered a key figure in the history of public relations. Um, because she masterminded the public relations campaign long before Ivy Lee and Edward Bernays did. Um, so I think that, you know, she's, she's a major figure who has been underexplored. Um, but also uh, Walter Littman plays a prominent role in this book. Um even if as a foil to William T. Stead. Uh, and in fact, it was reading Lip- Walter Lippmann's, um A Preface to Politics that, uh, that originally got me thinking about the connection between um, campaigns against white slavery and models of the press. And so he's a, he's a major figure, even though you don't usually think of him in, ter- in re- relation to the um, history of sexuality. Right? But he argued in, in his first book, written in 1913, he basically held up the crusade against white slavery as um, the very example of... Um, of what was of everything that was wrong with the news during the progressive era, right? That you had this highly reactive public, these, you know, crusades that would flare up and, uh, and then, and then, you know, legislation would be created and red tape would be created. And then the, the crusade would die, but you would be left with the detritus of the campaign. Um, and, so he's also a major figure in this book um, because he offers such a very different model of the press um, than Stead. And so they're almost polar opposites. And on, you know, and, and he's a grant, the grand theoretician in some ways of journalistic objectivity. And Stead is, I call him the grand theoretician of sensationalism. Toward the end, in fact, in the very, there's a there's a line, there's a sentence in the very last paragraph of the book that love it if you could just expand on a little bit. And the the sentence is in a profession whose primary function is to report on the new, 
and Newbing in quotes. Journalists do not always reflect on the history of the stories they tell. Ah, right. Well, and in part, it's because, you know, (laughs) journalism trades in the new and the topical. Um, And so one thing that you see and that I I try to emphasize to my students, right, is that um, you'll see a social problem being magnified by the press, but also, you know, treated as though it's somehow new or unprecedented. And I'll often hold up the example of sex trafficking, right, which you would think from the level of coverage that you see today and and the the tone of the coverage that it's you know this this new problem it's never existed on this scope and scale before you know and then i take them i show them newspaper reports from 100 years ago that are making that same claim um but i think that i think that history is important to journalism especially the history of of topical issues like sex trafficking, um, because, you know, every narrative has its own history. It's got its own history, cultural history, and it's deployed under, you know, institutionally embedded, historically determined conditions. And if journalists were, you know, more aware of the history of certain topics, then they would be inclined to write on them differently to report on them differently. When it comes to sex trafficking, um, a good example of this would be someone like Nicholas Kristof, who has written extensively about sex trafficking, global, the global sex trade, and um, you know has unwittingly become the modern-day stead. Uh, right after 9-11, he purchased the freedom of two women in Cambodia that he can considered sex slaves. Um, and, you know, so he's really positioned himself as this sort of swashbuckling journalist that rescues women. And um, in his book, Half the Sky, which he wrote with his, his wife, uh, they basically say that, you know, women's issues have been ignored by journalism and, you know, we want to finally call for once, you know, we want to call attention to these issues um, by doing things like purchasing the freedom of sex slaves. Um, but that statement alone, you know, suggests that there's that, uh, you know, that he's not aware of the the, the sort of extensive ways <laughs> um, that journalists in the last century and and. Uh, did cover sex trafficking and um, and also that, you know, it shows a lack of awareness of some of the material effects of that coverage, some of the implications of that coverage in terms of uh, the legislation that was created. Um, so, you know, a journalist who knew about the history of white slavery and, and knew that white crusades against white slavery and reportage led to the creation of the Mann Act, which led to the creation of the FBI, you know, might be, would be inclined to um, offer up different types of narratives. 
And so that's what I meant that, you know, it's important to forge a historical awareness among, among journalists, some of whom are, you know, very savvy when it comes to history and, and, um, you know, and, and some others aren't. So the book is at last is done and the research for this project is done. What is next for you? Well, I have two projects that I'm working on. They're both um, in a fair, fairly early phase. Um, the first is a revisionist history of public relations that was inspired by chapter three of my book um, that looks at, you know, the, the, the campaign to reform the media mounted by evangelical women's organizations and temperance organizations. Um, and there's so much more that can be done with that and that can be said um, because really the, the strategies that these evangelicals had devised were, were akin to public relations the only difference is that public relations is professionalized, right? Whereas these were volunteer workers who were engaging in public relations practices. Um, and so, you know, most historians of American public relations tend to locate its origins in the early 20th century, you know, and situated squarely in secular modernity. And they conceive of it as you know, tacitly as a very masculinist project. And so, you know, this next project of mine wants to complicate that history a little bit by suggesting that people like Willard were, you know, at the on on the very forefront of um, inventing public relations techniques. Um, and then the other project is a is a broader history of sensationalism, which I suggested has, I think, been under theorized by um, by media historians who tend to, you know, either assume that the term is less complicated than it actually is, or just take common sense understandings of sensationalism at face value, um, and so. I want to start with, you know, a more analytical understanding of the term sensationalism and then, you know, trace how it's how the term has been utilized in both the press and in press criticism from about 1700 on. And that's the bigger of the two projects. I'm sure it will take me forever <laughs> <laughs> to do that research. Um, but I've, I've broken ground on both of these projects. Well, the author is... Gretchen Soderlund, and the book is Sex Trafficking Scandal and the Transformation of Journalism, 1885 to 1917. Dr. Soderlund, thank you for joining us, and thank you for writing this book. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Dave. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Sex Trafficking, Scandal, and the Transformation of Journalism, written by Gretchen Soderlund at Amazon and other retailers. As always, thanks for listening.